0: Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I'm joined by Michaela Saunders. Now, here on the Final Draft Podcast, we love to explore books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the classics, the authors that you know and love. These conversations are a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books you love. Because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SDR broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. These are the traditional lands of the area that we call Sydney. And I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands, that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, we have a new collection from Michaela Saunders. It's called Always Will Be. And Michaela Saunders is a Kourigouris and Lebanese writer. She is incredible in her speculative, futuristic fiction. We've met before, and it's just a pleasure to be welcoming her back. Always Will Be carries the subtitle Stories of Guri Sovereignty from the Futures of the Tweed. This book looks forward and imagines the possibility of that statement, always was, always will be. I'm really excited to be bringing you this collection. Thank you for joining me today. Stay with me. Michaela Saunders is coming up after this short break. Uh, Michaela, welcome. It's so great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: I love collections. It is, it's is—it's such a trip reading through this. I've really enjoyed it. Always Will Be, it carries the subtitle, Stories of Guri Sovereignty from the Futures of the Tweed. And I think that's about as good an introduction as we're going to get. I'm not going to try and outdo that, at least until we dive into the stories. And I wanted to start with a question. It feels like a central concern in Always Will Be, as well as this all comes back now and also in your academic work. And that's... First Nations futurism and speculative fiction. Can you give us an idea of what these are and how they might differ to, I guess, dominant culture ideas about sci-fi or speculative fiction that perhaps many readers and listeners would be more familiar with?
1: Mm a good question and it's a good overview to, uh, yeah, as you said, my work. Um, well, what's become my burning passion in the last few years? Um, so speculative fiction or spec fic is a kind of big umbrella basket that contains lots of subgenres, um, literary subgenres, such as horror, climate fiction, science fiction, fantasy. Um, there's like countless arguments as to how these should be Hierarchized or like the kind of taxonomy as to how they're related. But I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested to see how First Nations writers use these um, genres, use these craft techniques, these themes, these tropes to tell our own stories. Um, And something that I've kind of figured out as I've gone uh, over reading and writing this stuff over the last few years is that – All of our cultural stories deal with speculative fiction fiction, um, devices and tropes in some way or another. So, if you think about all, like many of our cultural creation stories, um, we deal with life giving climate change, which are climate stories. Um, A lot of our stories concern ghosts or spirits, um, time travel, time warps, all of these things that you can find in, you know, contemporary speculative fiction stories um, are things that our old people use to tell stories and to, to um, you know, pass down knowledge through the generations. And I suspect the reason that these um, – These story techniques were used for such a long time is because they're so fun. They've endured, Um, you know, all cultures use them in some way or another. And now we have this kind of um, contemporary speculative fiction or science fiction um, literary tradition. And, of course, that was always dominated by Western um, ways of telling stories. But, you know, especially in the last 10 years, ten or so years, um, a lot of Indigenous and colonised peoples have been writing and publishing particularly our own spec fic and kind of using these tropes and reclaiming them and using them to tell our stories, um, the stories that are about our lives and our histories and our cultures rather than, um, you know, replicating some of the you know, golden age sci-fi things of colonization and um, contact between alien cultures. Because, because for us, that these aren't these are reality. These aren't really um, you know fantasy stories. So, yeah, that's my long answer um, as to how you know how that all fits together.
0: And you touched on it just there. Um, this sort of too often trope of, I guess, also especially future-leaning science fiction. You know, we can go back to the middle of the last century um, when, I guess... The big powers were looking to the skies and they were taking this lead from contemporary f- science fiction, which was had that really distinctly colonial bent, um, often humans exploring and colonising other worlds when they make contact, they're appropriating technologies that allow them to go, you know, sort of further and faster. Is there, in any way, a sense uh, the the futurist and speculative fiction, First Nations speculative fiction mm-hmm. that you're talking about that that is clapping back or responding to that tradition?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most of the stuff I read. Um, I'm I'm at the moment um, for the next three years. In fact, I'm at Macquarie Uni as a postdoctoral research fellow, and I'm writing a scholarly book on spec fic. And my job over the next few years is to find every piece of spec fic that's ever been published in all the different subgenres and I'm going to write a chapter on each of them um and so I've done a lot I've been doing a lot of reading and rereading and most of our writers are concerned with not so much clapping back like um I, I I guess some of us our writers might be driven by that but I think just in telling our own stories, it is asserting our own reality, which is at odds with the, you know, dominant Western scientific materialist p- paradigm that, you know, um, we're, we're kind of taught is the only reality. Um, I, you mentioned my the anthology that I edited a few years ago called This All Come Back Now. Um, I think all of the stories in here really demonstrate the way that, you know, we are using all these genres, whether it's horror, bush horror, fantasy, um, you know, near futurism, post human futures you name it. We're using these to assert our reality, to assert our, you know, histories and, and our presence, and even our futures and the way we're becoming. Um, yeah,
0: it's definitely one to, to check out too, because even there, as you and I don't want to move too far away from from always will be, but you had me thinking there about, you know, when we start to move into areas like horror, you know, there is, I might use scare quotes here, there is that kind of great Australian tradition, and I'm talking here about post-colonial white Australian tradition of Australian Gothic, where um, there there is a real othering of landscape so that it almost becomes the antagonist, it becomes the horrific other um, I'm thinking of wake in fright, and I'm thinking of numerous, like, ex- extremely entertaining, but again, that sense of othering. Uh, Tasmanian thrillers. There's a, you know, a lot of great stuff that turns that wilderness into a space of of fear for white people.
1: <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I um, it's probably the genre I know least about, and therefore the genre I'm most interested in at the moment, because I'm more interested in things that are a bit mysterious to me. Um, And I have been thinking about it and reading um, Alice Billet wrote a really brilliant essay in Griffith Review, Acts of Reckoning, uh, was it last year or the year before, um, about the Aboriginal Gothic, and using that and thinking about um, the way, you know, Aboriginal people versus white Australian people use the Gothic one thing I think it really boils down to is, as you mentioned, um, the Australian Gothic has a deep fear of the land and what the land can do and what the land can do to those people because it's a mysterious entity and it's something that needs to be cut down and slashed and burnt and tamed and gentrified in the tradition of the old country. But with the Aboriginal Gothic, um, it's more complex. Sure, there's creatures in the bush, there's spirits, there are places that you can't go. But this fear comes from a knowledge of the land itself and also what is being done to the land by the colonising forces. Um, We see that particularly in Alexis Wright's Plains of Promise, where even the Aboriginal people who um, are are educated on the mission, they become really fearful of their own land because of the way Christianity has worked in their lives. So there, you know, the land is always this um, very powerful force, a powerful entity. But that's that's um, just how Aboriginal people see the land, anyway. But in these traditions, in you know, an Australian Gothic, it's just a kind of, I guess, it's a literary um, device or a, a, a genre, a, a way of telling a way of telling on themselves about how, you know, how scared they are of these mysterious Aboriginal bush stories and and how they need to tame them. And, you know, we can see that in all the stories about little lost Australian children in the bush and, you know, the harm that might be done to them by, um, you know, hordes of Aboriginal people or, yeah. It's a very telling genre, I think.
0: I always know it's going to be a good chat, Michaela, when uh, we can so easily veer off and it just feels natural. But So forgive me, I'm going to unnaturally take a, a hard left and bring us back to always will be. And that, that that's probably good by way of segue because I, I think when people hear the phrase always was, always will be, if they regard it at all, they tend to look back. They think about 65,000-plus years of history More recently, the 250 plus years of colonial invasion and dispossession, they're really focusing in on that always was. How did you want to open up the possibility, and and by that, the future, of the phrase always will be through the collection?
1: Well, the thing is, I actually named the collection... way after I'd written most of the stories. So it was an afterthought. But when I look back, um, I've always kept a journal. And when I look back at when I first started thinking about this project and writing the stories, it was 2017. And it was the year that um, William Bates passed away in 2017. Now, he, it was he who... Um, who kind of recorded that phrase from his own father, Uncle Jim Bates, um, on a trip out to um, out to Barkindji Land, which is the, where they're from now. This is in the 1980s, Western New South Wales. Um, they're starting a land rights campaign. They're travelling through um, their traditional land. William Bates said to... Um, his father, Uncle Jim Bates, you know, oh, you, you know, he's explaining what was happening, and Jim Bates said, "Well, it always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that's where the phrase came from." And then it kind of spread like wildfire throughout the land rights movement. You go to any Aboriginal rally, um, you will hear it chanted. Um, it's on shirts, it's on, it's it's all over. Everyone knows about it, as you said. Um, now, in 2017, he passed away, and I guess this slogan that I'd grown up hearing all my life really um, I started to think about it a lot more deeply, especially in the fact that I was starting to write futuristic stories. And, you know, there's always a question as a writer, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you writing this story? Who are you writing it for? What's the point? Well, these are the questions that I think – anyone has to grapple with, but certainly as an Aboriginal writer, I write for my own community, especially younger people in my community. Um, I'd been reading a lot of futurism, Australian futurism, and I found a lot of it very disappointing. Uh, I found quite a bit of it ridiculous. You know, the most famous um, speculative, well, futuristic story um, in Australia is Mad Max. Mad Max. And the year before, Fury Road had come out, and I loved it. I mean, it's an incredible film, and I'm really excited for the new one too, incidentally. Um, But I was thinking about Mad Max, and I was thinking about the previous films and the fact that there's only one Aboriginal character in that whole franchise, and he's in Fury Road, and he's a ghost, and he's the only one, and he says to Mad Max, you let us die and he's when Max is having this delirium dream and to me that's always been the most apt metaphor for our representation in a lot of Australian futurism we're just not there we've been genocided we're not there now as someone who um I'm the descendant of two generations of stolen generations women um I know for a fact that these genocidal fantasies um, were, you know, they they tried to enact them on us. You know, so many of our people were killed or assimilated in other ways. So it, it's really important to me when I'm writing and, and in writing this collection that we are not assimilated, that we are always there, <coughs> that we're not just one lone Aboriginal character in a white story there to help everyone else. Um, that we have our own agency, we have our own sovereignty, that even if we, you know, have our struggles, that we have our struggles together as a community, as a collective, because that's the way it is and that's the way uh, it always will be. Um, So, yeah, so thinking about all of these things when I was starting to write and all through the writing process, I think, yeah, really drove home the fact that I wanted to assert our sovereignty in the future, um, in any kind of future, because, as you know, you've read the book, the stories aren't just set in one version of the future. They're set in, like, 16, 17 different versions of the future. Um, And I wanted to make sure that in every story, no matter what the future held, whether it was, you know, rising oceans or a frozen world or runaway climate change, that my community were always together and they were always um, asserting their sovereignty in whichever way they were able to. Awesome.
0: I want to go to a few other stories now, or or hop around and pull out pull out some themes in. In stories like uh, cultural immersion program or Tweed Sanctuary tour, you explore the possibility of restoring culture and recovering lost knowledge, recovering lost language. Could you talk a little bit about that idea? The importance of First Nations culture as a vibrant, living thing. And I, I guess I'm coming to that from a place. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. Uh, where we, we talked about like what our education was like when we were kids and this idea that if we were given any understanding of who the, the Indigenous inhabitants, the First Nations people were, it was a really kind of um, noble, savage sort of idea of th- these are only people who live on the land and there's not many of them, et, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, in these stories I, I found you know, this reimagining of culture as a vibrant living thing that we we understand is there today, again, if we choose to acknowledge it. Yeah, I was hoping to, you could talk a little bit about what you're exploring there.
1: Hmm. I think with Cultural Immersion Program, um, I was thinking about technology. It was actually commissioned by um, Jenna Raine and Maya Hodge. Um, it was for a West Space Program. It was in response to um, a Yongu exhibition where they were actually using technology and video to showcase their culture. And I was asked to write this very short piece, um, you know, only a thousand words or so, in response to that. And I actually imagined, you know, a, a, f- a future where, you know, there was all this cultural knowledge in the archives, but maybe there weren't the right people or enough people to teach that stuff. And I thought about the ways technologies could be used to um, teach culture because, as we know, the best way to learn a culture is to be immersed in it, right? It's not read it in a book because so much context and nuance is lost in that way. And I thought about this world – which you know I've I created in very just a few pages where um, they've these two people or probably more I don't know we're, we're only looking at two people um, they've created an immersion pro, an immersion program using technology and it's virtual reality and you know you you put these little earbuds in and you put these little gel pads. Um, over your temples, and I don't really know how it works. I'm just making it up, obviously. Um, but basically... There's a little countdown and then all of a sudden you're in this world. You're in a world, you're on country, you can smell the smells, you can hear the sounds, you can see people dancing, you can look around and everywhere you are there are people teaching and learning culture and you're actually able to walk around in this virtual reality and you're able to learn painting, you're able to learn dancing, you're able to learn about bush medicine and you're learning it from people who look like you. Um, who speak the language. Um, there's a few glitches in the story and there's a few glitches in the world, but yeah, I was just really thinking about that through that story, how cool that would be. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the Tweed Grew community um, and every time I, you know, as much as I've always had to move away for work or whatever, I've always gone back. That's where my cultural responsibilities are. And I've been involved in cultural stuff um, on and off all my life down there. Um, I know how important culture is to your identity as an Aboriginal person and especially to our young ones, especially those who, who are having troubles. And I thought, what a cool thing this would be. What a cool use of technology. What a cool way to keep culture alive and to make sure that you know, the young ones are learning it and, and then they can pass it on. In in real life, they don't even have to use um any kind of computer programs to do it. Um Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff I was thinking through with that story.
0: It's actually really wonderful because I mean it feels like, you know, for the better part of eighteen months we've we've been in a worldwide cultural spasm around the idea that AI could could end us all. Um and you know, further back we we look at I guess, cultural recognition of virtual reality and artificial intelligence through things like, um, you know, geek gamer fantasies like Ready Player One. But to imagine the constructive potential and the idea that one, one thing that really struck me that I thought was amazing about the collection is you don't shy away. I'm actually cannibalizing a later question. We'll see if we come back to this. But in Always Will Be, you do not shy away from the idea that the future will have technology. But you don't hammer home the idea that we all have to be plugged in or that we all have to be updated for it to be the future. Technology is a tool and there are more important things. I wonder, like, what guided you imagining these future spaces? I got a sense that while we are looking into the future, we are looking at different times in the future and different iterations of, I guess, some of the things that are happening now. Things like dispossession and real estate sort of going crazy, the environment just falling off a cliff. What guided
1: you? Yeah, I think I think um, it's a huge question, and there's like lots of facets to that answer. Um, I a few years ago, I listened to a really wonderful. Um, interview with the science fiction writer Ted Chiang and it was just around the time his book Exhalation came out and he said something that really stuck with me and it was basically um and I'm bastardizing his words sorry Ted but the way I understood it was he was saying that it doesn't matter if you're writing science fiction or fantasy or any other genre you just have to really ask yourself what is the purpose that this technology or this device or this Novum is um, serving in your story. Because I think some of the worst genre fiction is really just about, look how cool this technology is. And it's not really a story, is it? It's just a kind of description of something. Um, And so, as you said, there is technology in my stories, but it's not what the stories are about. And I was trying to be, I was trying to make these stories more about the people, about the, the worlds, um, I th- I find those the most important or the most interesting stories. Other people might disagree. That's cool. It's probably not the book for them, um, but there is technology in all the stories, even in the stories where you might not immediately think it's a science fiction story. I was trying to think about what is science, what is technology. Now Grace Dillon, who's the um, Anishinaabe editor of uh, Walking the Clouds, which is uh the first collection of indigenous futurisms or indigenous science fiction which actually got me started on this path when i read it years ago um she talks about indigenous science and sustainability and how that's how these stories are different to western science fiction stories and it got me thinking about what are our technologies what are our sciences and can i create a science fiction story using our science and technology that might not be classed as that because it's not we're not talking about robots or computer technology but a very different and organic type, type of technology and that's what firebug is about now firebug's a story it's set in a, a hot future um, where young kids are taken out to school camp, and they're taken out on country by a bunch of fire rangers who are, I guess, a combination of bush rangers and maybe, I don't know, cultural fire custodians. Um, And the reason to me this is a science fiction story is because it's about the impact of a technology on a society, and the technology in this story is the use of cultural burning and how a community uses it, you know, to transform themselves, but also as a social and educational tool. So without the fire in this story, there would be no story, right? So to me, it is an Indigenous science fiction story. But it's a, it's also about a lot more um, stuff than that, which I'll let readers decide for themselves. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to think about how, for us, fire is a tool and its use and the cultural way we use it is a technology because um, it's it's a science that's built up over millennia. It's known to shape our environment for the better. Um, we use it rather than letting it use us. And yeah, so these are the kinds of thinking, the things I was thinking about. So there's that, there's that organic technology and science that we use. But then, as you say, there are other kinds of um, technology and science in here when we look at virtual reality programs or like even spaceships. Um, I was trying to do a bit of everything, but yeah, again, not letting the, the technology drive the stories, rather letting the stories be what they are and the technology, um, you know maybe just enhancing the story a little bit.
0: It first strikes me, Firebug is such a tremendous example of thinking about technology because, not specifically in the story, but if we if we think a little bit about fire and especially the way or the, the perhaps the ways we are not um, dealing with fire in this country at the moment, we see a very, very old technology, one that perhaps or at least in different iterations and in different cultures, has not been properly understood, has not been properly controlled. And all that's meant is that we've had to innovate and create a whole lot of new technologies to help us because we didn't reach that foundational, that fundamental understanding. And um, I think, I mean, that's really a very big part of Firebug, isn't it? That we are looking at people who are trying to, let's go back and figure out the first principles before we you know, reinvent the wheel to, to control it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what exactly what I was trying to do. And I, you know, a lot of these stories are a little bit of wish fulfillment for me. I thought, what a cool world would it be would if we, if our young people could learn this stuff and then they could go out into their own communities and spread this knowledge and, um, you know, hopefully we could undo a little bit of the damage with with all these raging bushfires that are getting out of control um, over the last few years. Um, and in doing so, they can, you know, they can attain that self-esteem that is so important to young people who, who come from troubled homes and that they really need to feel strong in their cultural identity.
0: Mm. Just following on from that idea... It seems like there is maybe a separation in the stories in the book where we have people who have the opportunity and agency of their own decisions versus people who do not have that agency and so have to react and respond. And you show us different futures where that plays out. And, um, like... I don't know quite. I've gone off. I've gone off script here, but d- that really struck me as you were as you were talking there. It just like there are th- the stories where people have the agency of their own decisions are really quite wonderful. Um, they seem to me marked in a couple of ways. I don't know that you would necessarily w- want them called utopias, Michael. I, I'm, I'm, I think in one you specifically maybe a character says this. This isn't a utopia. Um, <clears throat> they're also stru- they also seem to be marked by. Narrators or the characters speaking directly, which is also a really wonderful thing. Um, there's no question here, please. This is a comment,
1: <laughs> it's nice to hear your thoughts. Like, I so I wrote these stories over the period of a few years. Um, a few people read a few of them, some of them were published, but as a collection, it comes out next week, and I haven't heard what people think about it yet. So, please go tell me well, <laughs> I love it
0: a, st- a story I particularly enjoyed was no country for old women I enjoyed the way you played with contradictions so we have a woman uh, who returns to country after raising her children and we see play out like I I, I would I've described it as a kind of minimalist tale of resilience. It's the sort of thing that variously you will find TikTok and Instagram channels um, and uh, probably YouTube's telling you how to live on the land and and she is doing it well. But of course, you turn turn this on its head and remind the reader of the importance of connection and community. The first thing that struck me is this feels like a bit of an extension of a situation happening at the moment. Australia's real estate is just spiraling out of control. People are being... We have this really interesting thing where somehow, as a nation, we refuse to even look at the history of dispossession from 250 years ago, starting 250 years ago. But we have no problem or, well, that might be too strong a way to put it. But we're really able to look at people right now and talk about that sense of dispossession because real estate is getting so expensive. So that that in itself is a is a, um is a big contradiction that I think we need to face. But were you, was this growing out of that sort of current situation?
1: Yeah. Well, when I wrote this story a few years ago, it was a futuristic story, but as you say, (laughs) now it's not. It's actually, um, I don't, you know, I don't take any pleasure in the fact that this story could be set here and now. Isn't
0: that the problem with spec fic? You've got to publish it quick or it just becomes contemporary
1: yeah, yeah, it's just a realist story. Um, look, I mean, it's still it's still a little bit futuristic. But basically, I wrote this story on one of my many trips back home. Um I was swimming at the beach, and I looked up. I looked northwards and I saw surface paradise glittering in the sun. It looked like this kind of mythical Atlantis made out of like crystals and and glass just rising up. and I just we always have a joke back in tweed uh, that the best thing about service paradise is its view from tweed um <laughs> so i looked at that and then i looked back i looked south down the way and i looked at you know cool and how green and beautiful it was and i thought look at the difference but then i kept looking back and forward back and forward and i noticed all these cranes and skyscrapers up and down the coast and i realized what was happening, you know, I realized that this, the city was just coming down. It was coming down towards Tweed. And in fact, if you look at, if you go there now, there are new high rises going up every week. Um, There are cranes, there are buildings all over the shop. Um, So many people I know have been priced out. A lot of my family and community have had to leave because they can't afford to live there anymore. Um, rents like tripled and quadrupled over COVID. A lot of rich people came in and bought everything up. Um, So many places that Airbnb now, there's not enough long-term rentals. Yeah. So all the stuff that's happened a lot over the last few years to a lot of small towns, um, has certainly happened to Tweed. So when I wrote that, that hadn't all happened yet, but now yes, it has. Um, So I was thinking about the ways that, how could you live on country when it's all turned into a city and you can't afford to live there? And I thought about the fact that someone could you know, maybe conceivably still move out to the hills um, and live on a block of land. Now, this comes a lot from my own life. I've, I spent a few years on and off living in my van um, over various periods of my life, um, spent a lot of it camping out in the mountains, down at the beach, and I just thought it. I was just using a lot of my own knowledge there. Um, but you mentioned in this story that it's a bit of a – um it kind of pokes fun at this idea that you can do it all by yourself. Um, I was poking fun at that idea. Um, you know, a big part of me writing these stories was I read all of the Aboriginal written uh, futurism that that we have to offer and while I love a lot of it, I had some big critiques with some of it you know, there are some stories out there, some very big um, Aboriginal stories futuristic stories that you know, they only have one Aboriginal character in it, some lone Aboriginal character and I wanted to speak back against that, I wanted to say, you can't we, we're not going to survive in the future when there's just one or a few of us um, and so some of my stories poke fun at that idea and this is one of them um, she wants to be self-sufficient and resilient and all that but you can't be um, it it's it literally comes to bite her on the ass doesn't it um, and there's another story in there um, a prodigal return where this is also um, this is also the big problem that the main character has to do.
0: Mm. there is a, and we talked a little off air about choosing a story it, it's often it's often helpful to choose a story from a collection, at least to have a sense. If we tried to talk about all 17 or 18 stories, uh, we'd play short shrift to any given one. So it's nice to, nice to go a little deeper. I, did, um, I was really curious about, again, uh, this idea of, of what a future scenario might represent. And I was hoping maybe to contrast your protagonist in No Country for Old Women with the story Blood and Soil which I think for a lot of readers, like straight away, that title, like that title had me kind of going, ugh. Um, you've, got two, <laughs> you've got two very different visions of reclaiming land and and reclaiming space, and neither are necessarily offering a particularly sustainable or desirable way to move forward. Why was it important to you to explore these, I guess, kind of future imperfect scenarios?
1: Well... Look, one of the main reasons is, like, uh, I guess, growing up along, uh, around a lot of kind of um, indigenous fringe political movements, you always get these young, usually young fellas who, you know, they go to uni and they get really heavily politicised and they all of a sudden they want to take up arms against the government. Um now, I mean, that's not always the case, but it's just something I've noticed a lot. Um, it's happened for a long time, as long as I can remember. And I've always thought, well, what, these, what do these people want? What do they expect? Um, you know, because to trace that conclusion to its logical end is going to be bloody and violent you know is this what they mean do they mean would they would they do it and so this story blood and soil is um following i guess the the, the life of a young man who um you know he grows up in a fairly secluded and heavily politicized family um they they kind of shun society they keep to themselves a lot. Um, But I really wanted to trace his growing up because another thing I've seen in a lot of, um, you know, political movements throughout the years, and I'm sure this is the same in a lot of cultures is, you know, um, so-called culture men who, you know, all of a sudden they become um, these great leaders and they have these Messiah complexes, you know, they have this kind of cult of personality that grows up around them and I really think that because they're Aboriginal and because there's a lot of hand-wringing lefties that kind of come around, um, they get away with so much. They get away with some really, you know, bad, horrible, abusive stuff. Um, so, I mean, I don't think they're the biggest problem in the world, but there's just a few of them. And um, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to think about the, the way that a bloody and violent, aboriginal coup could happen in the tweed and these are all the things that went into that story and i really thought the only way that that would be pulled off is if some megalomaniac violent um you know self-centered megalomaniac was able to get to a point where you know he had a bit of a cult around him and people egging him on and nobody pulling him up and yeah and that's how they would get away with it
0: and and the juxtaposition for me was was just the way into very different circumstances. You you find people who are alone. Like connection isn't just about having people around you. It's about the ways and the qualities of those relationships. Mm. Um, and I mentioned before that by contrast, there are numerous stories in the collection where we have a narrator who is not just connected within community of the story but they're speaking out to us as the reader guiding us through spaces sometimes as a literal tour there was there was this warmth and familiarity that i really liked in these stories but i also appreciated your deft hand in weaving through these tours i guess a history of the world that had brought them to this point Mm -hmm. so would you say that maybe there is a, a guiding hand or perhaps that there are ways forward to be discovered in always will be
1: yeah, I think so. Um, as I said, I think this is a this. A lot of these stories are definitely a little bit of wish fulfillment for me, but they're also exercising through um, a lot of my despair and depression around climate change and um, you know our our very complex and heavy colonial inheritances. Um, in each of the stories, you know, I'm I'm thinking about. What could this particular world look like? What kind of characters would live in this world? What would their um, problems be? You know, what kind of stories could emerge from these worlds? Um, I definitely think in terms of, um, you know, the narrator's voice, which is, you know, my own voice, just heavily stylized, I do draw on the voice in my head, which I think you know, is made up of all those older people's voices from my community who help teach me and guide me all throughout my life. I just hear their voices in my head. Um, Whenever I'm, you know, whenever I'm unsure about how to act in a certain given situation or whether I've done something I'm very proud of and very happy about, I talk to my old people in my head and I hear I do hear them talk back to me. Um, and so when I write, that particular voice with its particular music and rhythm and cadences, it comes out onto the page. And so in some of these stories that you mention, um, particularly the tour, I do, I have these very chatty, conversational, very working class, tweed, blackfella voice, um, because to me that makes the most sense. You know, I want the voice to come from the world. I don't want it to... Um, I don't want it to, you know, be written as some, I guess, so-called um, objective voice. Like I want it to actually come from the land and from the community. That's what I was trying to do there. Yeah.
0: Um, Michaela, they are the questions that I, I had for today. Is there anything else though about the collection, any stories that you wanted to shout out before we, before we say goodbye?
1: No, because they're all my children, and you can't love um, any children more than the others. I, they're they're a family, you know. They're a family of children, and I think um, they make the most sense read together. Um, I mean, some of the stories were published in other settings, um, just as standalone. But to me, they mo- make they they make the most sense read in this book and in this order because they seem to suggest a kind of chronological order that maybe might mean that all of the stories are part of the same world and timeline, but they also might not be. So that's up to the reader to decide or to make that decision. Um, I don't mind either way.
0: I I guess if people want to find out a little bit more, they could go back and find our conversation. We spoke uh, around the collection Flock and – we chatted about uh, River Story, which features in both collections. So uh, that's, I mean, look, I don't think people need any more convincing to go out and buy the collection. But, you know, you never know some people. I am speaking with Michaela Saunders. We are discussing her new collection. It is called Always Will Be. And look, it is tremendous. We have only scraped the surface of the incredible stories you're going to discover. Michaela, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew.
0: Thank you for joining me on the Final Draft Podcast. Thank you also to Michaela Saunders. We were talking about her new collection. It is called Always Will Be. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch with us. You can email us. You can reach out on social media. It's all about just that Final Draft part. So email email finaldraft 2 scrcom or search for at finaldraft 2 scr on your social media. If you subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, well, it means new Final Draft podcasts every week. We usually have a full-length interview and a short that you can enjoy, so there's no excuse not to keep up with great Australian reading. My name's Andrew Popel. I am going to be back very soon with more incredible conversations from Australian authors. Till then, I'm going to go do some reading. I wish you happy reading. Bye for now.